Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's election 2016 coverage continues with conversation with the candidates today. Today we're talking with Democrat Mike Parrish, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 6th Congressional District that includes parts of Lebanon, Berks, Chester, and Montgomery counties. Uh, Colonel Parrish, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. And I mentioned uh, that uh, you are a colonel in the Army Reserves. One of the first questions I have for you, since the, you are a new candidate, uh, there may be uh, some voters out there who don't know a whole lot about your background. So if you would, introduce yourself. Sure. Just uh, real briefly, um, as you mentioned, Scott, I am a, a colonel in the Army Reserves. I've spent 31 years serving our country both on active duty and in the reserves. Um, just by way of introduction, I'm not a career politician. Uh, I grew up as an Army brat. I was born in Germany to the son of a career Army officer. Uh, I was fortunate enough to graduate from West Point back in 1985 and flew attack helicopters for our Army, serving in places like Korea and Germany. I also served at, uh, in Desert Storm, and, uh, and then the Army sent me to Stanford, so I have a master's in astronautical engineering, so I am a, a rocket scientist. Uh, I left the active duty Army back in the, the uh, mid-'90s and went to work for General Electric, and uh, they're the ones who moved me down here to Malvern, where I live in Chester County, Fell in love with Chester County, as, as most of us do, and uh, have not moved since uh, early uh, 2002 when I when I moved here. Uh, I also have an MBA from Wharton. So um, after I left GE, I went to become a uh, start my own business in uh, in environmental services. So I'm a small business owner as well, and uh, that's uh, what brings me to running for Congress. I have uh, also three young children. Uh, son 14 and two daughters. All right. Well, let's talk about why you decided to run for Congress. Sure. Um, uh, as I say, I've, I've not really been uh, super actively involved in, in politics uh, other than, you know, supporting friends and family and obviously voting. Um, and I think that as Congress has gotten more and more uh, dysfunctional, as we all know, that uh, it's uh, kind of my frustration and many Americans' frustration on their inability to get anything done. Uh, the polarizing attitudes down in Washington have just uh, become overwhelming. And, and uh, you know, as my father taught us, uh, we either put up or shut up, which means instead of complaining about a, a problem, bring a solution. And so I'm, I'm, you know, was trained to be a, a leader of character for a lifetime of selfless service to our nation. And uh, having had a, a career in the military and also in business, I'm, I, you know, I think I have the ability to give back and, and kind of change the attitude and the and the. Uh, uh, the polarizing attitudes down in Washington. Well, let's talk about that, because that is something that the American people talk about often, is the dysfunction in Congress and this polarization, not just in Washington, but across the country. So if you are elected to Congress, uh, right now you, as a Democrat, would be in the minority. But uh, what do you do about that polarization? What do you do about the bringing people together to try to get something done in Congress? Well, it starts with the with utilizing the C word compromise, and uh, you know it starts with with reaching across the aisle and and working with Republicans and and others to be able to to come up with with bipartisan solutions. And uh, you know right now it's it's uh, too many people are uh, you know too many of the elected officials now are, are beholden to special interests. And while I think they're well meaning and they they have uh, good ideas, I think they're really um, stuck to having to, to serve the interests of, of those uh, um, those those people that uh, you know that are kind of dictating what they're what they're doing. I mean, the attitude is such down there, and I've talked to some some Republican friends who are or, or congressmen that they tell the story that they're not allowed to be seen in public with Democrats, and uh, you know it's it's this kind of uh, attitude that is is to me uh, nonsensical. You know, I think one of the first things I'd do is probably go have lunch with a Republican and uh, you know and, and and prove that that we can get along. You know, as I, I define my my political beliefs is not. 
not uh, as a Democrat or as a Republican, but as an American. And I think we have to realize that, you know, we're Americans first before uh, party politics. And, you know, your opponent and uh, your opponent, by the way, is incumbent uh, Ryan Costello, a Republican. Um, you know, one of the criticisms that he has had of you in the campaign, and there have been others in the Republican Party, is that you used to be a Republican. Why are you a Democrat now? Well, actually, I used to be an independent before I was Republican also. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I was a Republican for a bit. I signed up uh, to support uh, then John McCain, Senator McCain, when he was running for president as a, as a fellow Academy graduate. Um, and I became uh, kind of disillusioned after he uh, then you know, picked Sarah Palin as his uh, running mate, and I just never really changed uh, party affiliations because I never really thought much about it. But I will tell you that that I think that you know I changed parties affiliation about three years ago, and and I think the Republican Party has become truly the party of no, and it's become so so polarizing that it's gotten even worse than it was three years ago. I, I you know I, I've got lots of Republican friends, and I just am, am you know disappointed or frustrated with a lot of the attitudes down in Washington from our current Republican establishment. And I would say that, uh, you know, I think as President Reagan said, you know, I, I didn't leave the party. The party left me. Which Republicans, you know, and I ask a lot of uh, candidates this because, you know, it, it, it comes down to the polarization question. You mentioned that uh, you changed registration to vote for uh, John McCain. Uh, what Republicans uh, do you admire? Um, good question. I guess I'd probably have to go with Colin Powell, General Powell. And you know, I look at him as, as as being a role model, being someone that uh, you know uh, speaks, as we say, the harder right than these are wrong. And he, you know, he speaks his mind, and he and, he, and he's he's a, a leader of character. And he's uh, in his multiple roles has, has kind of served multiple functions, and he's he's crossed the aisle many times. And uh, again, he's he's someone that that I respect, and someone that has has done well. He's you know, and, and he's been successful in his own right. What are the uh, some of the biggest issues that you see facing the nation and facing Congress right now? <laughs> well, there's a there's a long list, yeah, there of are, course. There so, are, yeah. You know, I guess let me let me couch that by you know, for for those of us that grew up in the '60s and '70s, is is you know, we we're still the greatest nation on earth, and you know, we we remember where we came from, and a lot of the 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 hate speech that we hear, and a lot of the 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 this this. Um, polarizing commentary that's coming out of uh, this election cycle, you know, as I say, we can't go back to where we were in the, in the 60s and 70s. You know, we were way worse then than we are now. And so, you know, the idea of, of America and, you know, people around the world still look up to us as the greatest nation on earth. So, you know, uh, we're not perfect, obviously, and, uh, you know, but we're not as bad as some people would, would tend to, to believe. Um, I think that the, the biggest struggle for me and the biggest challenge I'm going to have is in, in one of my biggest focuses is obviously kind of bringing proven leadership and breaking that, uh, that polarizing attitude. But beyond that, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the critical things, national security, jobs in the economy. Um, and, I, you know, I, I have some different proposals and plans to kind of help with that. What are some of those different plans? Because, uh, you know, what you just described, probably every candidate would say national security, jobs, education, those kind of things. But what are some of the ideas you have that you think are a little bit different? Sure. Uh, I guess it starts with the real simple thing is getting rid of special interests uh, and special interest money in politics. I think too many times, uh, you know, candidates are evaluated on uh, their ability to fundraise in, as opposed to their ability to, to lead. And I think that uh, the, the amount of money that's that's involved in, in politics is, is making, making, like I said earlier, the uh, the current politicians beholden to their special interests. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that ties into to be able to get something done around the economy, around uh, my, my big focus is on infrastructure. 
If you recall, the, one of the big engines of growth in the 20th century was a, a bold bipartisan plan laid out uh, to build our, our highways and, uh, and infrastructure system by President Eisenhower, another West Pointer. And I think that uh, you know, for the 20th, 21st century economy, we need a 21st century infrastructure. And I think uh, Congress, unfortunately, has become too too comfortable with patting themselves on the back by doing less than the bare minimum to keep our infrastructure uh, intact. And my vision and my view is to, to have a bold bipartisan plan like President Eisenhower's to, to uh, have a, a large, uh, you know, massive upgrade of, of not just our roads and bridges and our utilities, but also to, to prepare our power grid from a national security perspective, but also from uh, being able to, to, to have renewable energy uh, systems in place. So. so what you're describing is, and I think both Democrats and Republicans say that we do need a, an upgrade in our infrastructure, that we're lagging uh, when it right. comes to a lot of other uh, democracies around the world, a lot of uh, other countries around the world. But the big question is, and when you're talking a big, about a big, bold plan is, where does the money come from? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I did an op-ed out that, that, that you can see on my website, Parish for Congress, and also in, in various... Uh, um, presses out, out here in the um, in the, the market. Um, my view is is to reinvigorate uh, the Buy America bonds that were started back in 2008. Uh, uh, reinstitute the infrastructure bank that was was on its way as a bipartisan plan to create an infrastructure bank focused on infrastructure, but uh, that kind of went by the wayside because of the economic meltdown of 2009, 10, and 11. Um, the having public-private partnerships. Um, I, I also look at. And opportunities uh, to, to to stimulate the, the job market with uh, students, helping you know uh, reduce a lot of the student loan debt and give them opportunities to work in a national infrastructure core, if you will. You know, it's it's interesting that Moody's put out a, a report that said for every every uh, dollar invested in our infrastructure yields a dollar forty four back to our economy, and that to me is just a, a common sense approach to to bring down our debt and increase people's wealth. Uh, unlike the arbitrary cuts that, that Congress, because of their incompetence. Uh, did which is uh, called sequestration. That's interesting uh, about the uh, you know the uh, national infrastructure core. You know, I, I assume you're modeling that after a Peace Corps or something like. How would that work? Sure. Well, I mean, you, know, you think you have a need on both sides. Uh, there's there's a struggling student debt, and there's a lot of issues around uh, you know our our next generation getting uh, proper training without being you know overwhelmed with uh, with costs. And then obviously you have the need for infrastructure. And as I kind of looked at it, when I went to Stanford, the Army paid for me to go to, to, to that great university. And, and for every year I went to Stanford, I gave back two years to the Army. And uh, why not have something like that if people volunteer or, or do some sort of a national service, and I propose Infrastructure Corps, that they would get their, their education funded, and in return they would, they would provide back a service to our infrastructure. So to me that seems like a, a, a win-win opportunity. You know, they have pride in ownership, uh, learn a skill, and, and create a job. Uh, you know, I just thought of something, and you know, maybe this is something you've never been asked as a candidate for Congress. But but because you do have this military background, and what you just described is similar to, there are those over the last few years who have said that we need like a military draft, maybe not a draft into the military, but drafting people into public service. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that the national service is important. I think again, it gives uh, you know, it, it, it gives a skill uh, to those that are that are coming in, and I think it also provides a, a esprit de corps and a sense of accomplishment. Uh, you know, for 
for for the you know the younger generation today that are you know focused really have their eyes in the on their iPads and and on their phones it gets them out you know and it helps us fix a, a neat thing. I don't know that that having a mandatory service is the right answer, but I do believe that uh, having a volunteer service is uh, it should be a great opportunity for us. You know, one of the greatest things about our military is we're an all volunteer force, and uh, you know they, they there was a big change from the draft to the the all volunteer army and uh, Navy and Air Force. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We continue our conversations with the candidates. Our guest today is Democrat Mike Parrish. He's running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 6th Congressional District. That includes parts of Lebanon, Berks, Chester, and Montgomery counties. WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. Uh, Colonel, let me uh, turn to uh, your opponent, Ron Costello, Uh, first-term Republican congressman. Uh, whenever there's an incumbent involved, you know, we've heard it said many times, and it's true, that it is a referendum on an election is a referendum on the incumbent. Why do you feel that you'd be a better candidate for Congress from the 6th District than Ryan Costello? Well, I think, uh, you know, we start from the beginning is that, you know, we can't afford career politicians like Ryan uh, who say one thing and do another. I mean, he, he unfortunately represents everything that's wrong with uh, with American politics. Um, he's completely beholden to his party leadership. Uh, he's most of the money he's raised is is from his special interests. And uh, to your earlier point, just in general, uh, you know, our, our system, as I'm learning, uh, is you know kind of skewed significantly towards uh, the incumbents. And so, being a challenger, I don't take anything for granted, obviously. But I think that you know, as I say, you know, he's had four jobs in his life as a career politician, all as an elected official. You know, I come from the other side of being a, a veteran and a and a business owner, and so I've. You know, who better to deal with, with veterans' issues? As a, as a service-stable veteran, I use the Coatesville VA system, so I understand it in, you know, implicitly by having used the system. As a small business owner who struggled to, to you know, keep a business afloat and get needed capital, I understand the, the challenges of, of overregulation of, of a small business. Um, I think that you know, when, when uh, uh, Ryan talks about him being a, a friend of the environment, he has a 14% voting record, according to League of Conservation Voters. He's supposedly uh, he, he says he's a supportive of education. He has a 20% voting record on the issues related to education, according to the National Education Association. For senior issues, I'm soon to be young, 53, and I you know expect my Social Security, and Medicare to be there, and uh, I I expect that uh, you know that that uh, you know we need to be able to keep that fully funded going forward. Uh, I think Ryan is is on record as in voting for the current budget to kind of lend the. The, the current trend of trying to privatize Social Security and Medicare, according to the National Committee of uh, to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, he has a zero percent voting record. Uh, your opponent also has distanced himself to a degree from uh, Donald Trump. Trump is uh, one of the major issues in this campaign. Those who right. support him, those who have distanced themselves from him, uh, is Trump uh, an issue in your race? Well, I, I think he's uh, he's, a, he's a big concern for many of us, and I and I would just uh, highlight that that Ryan has, was very quick to endorse Donald Trump. In fact, he was elected to be a delegate to the uh, Republican convention early on. However, uh, he tried to get out of that and, and step down. Um, he's on record, actually, he, since he doesn't speak, his campaign manager is on record uh, saying that uh, that that Ryan is a uh, he said a couple times that he supports the Republican nominee for president, and he's not come out and. And disavowed that. Um, I've been early on saying that uh, you know since since uh, uh, Mr. Trump kind of disavowed veterans and and uh, Gold Star families, I've been uh, a vocal uh, you know advocate to to ensure that he doesn't become president. The sixth congressional district is one that is pointed to as an example 
of a district that has been gerrymandered. Uh, I mean, it reaches into Lebanon County, Berks County, uh, Montgomery County, and mostly in Chester County. Uh, As you said, you live uh, in in Malvern, uh, outside of Westchester, along the Route 30 corridor. Um, What can you tell me about the, the problems or the challenges facing Lebanon County voters, for example? Well, sure. I think that that for for the district wide, the, the resounding issue is obviously you know we want a secure, safe place to to raise our children, to have what we call uh, freedom, fairness, and opportunity. You know, everybody to have a fair shot and have an opportunity to to kind of live the American dream and, and succeed as they as they want. I think in Lebanon in particular, uh, you know, there's a large uh, Hispanic community that uh, that is growing there, and I think that and and actually beyond the, the Hispanics, when it comes back to Mr. Trump, there, there's a lot of um, of our um, minorities and uh, diverse uh, families out here that are very, very concerned about the potential of a, of a uh, Trump presidency. Um, but the, you know, the Lebanon folks, uh, I go out there quite often, and as I say, that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, their vote counts just as much as mine. And I think one of the biggest uh, parts about Lebanon, and, and to add also to the Reading area, the Berks area, is is infrastructure. You know, uh, mass transit. And back on the infrastructure piece, one of the proposals I, I'm working with our state candidates for is, is, a, is some sort of a high-speed rail system that goes around the 422 quarter to, to reconnect to re, um, with Reading and, and also possibly with Lebanon to be able to, to kind of increase, um, you know, um, markets and connectivity for, for you know, trade and, and whatnot. Your campaign, uh, you and uh, Congressman Costello, uh, has gotten a little bit uh, personal. One of the things that he has uh, talked about is y- your personal finances. Sure. Uh, you did have a home that was foreclosed on. I just saw uh, something he had out uh, the other day that uh, you didn't pay your mortgage for uh, 12 months. You know, there are voters who would look at that and say, well, you know, how can we elect someone who is not responsible with his own finances? Sure, and, and I'll tell you, I'm extremely responsible with my finances, and, I, and I'm, in fact, I'm sitting in that house that's for, that, that, according to Ryan, would tell you that I'm foreclosed on and got kicked out of, and I'm using uh, my telephone that still works and is paid for. So, you know, I, I think that, unfortunately, um, and it, it's not a surprise because you can't uh, impeach me on on any of our uh, issues. And, you know, he can attack my, try to assassinate my character as, as much as he he desires, but it's a half truth. What he fails to leave out is my house is not foreclosed, and it never will be foreclosed on. In fact, I live here, and I happily live here. Um, you know, I am going through a loan modification process with, Lo- with Wells Fargo that should be, uh, you know, finalized and, and renewed here shortly. Um, I think the other parts that you, if you've seen this TV ad out there, he, you know, he mentions that I that I have been sued, and you got to remember what what the nature of my business has been after I sold my business. I I you know have gone in and tried to fix um, you know very struggling businesses, and you know when a business gets sued, sometimes an officer of the company gets gets named in a lawsuit, and uh, you know unfortunately in America anyone can sue anyone for every anything. Um, what he conveniently leaves out is that yes, I've been sued. However, he also leaves out the fact that they were dismissed, and, and some of them with prejudice, which means I can never be sued for for whatever they you know, you know they they tried to sue us for before. And it was all uh, uh, that it was a function of outcropping of some of the the business dealings. But you know, for me, I, I have you know. As I said, being a leader of character, and even as a business owner, I take responsibility and pride in taking care of my not only my soldiers in the military, but my employees and their families. And I have no regrets, and I would do the same thing as well. You know, the, during the economic turndown, where this all started is, you know, we had a couple of challenges in that we had some large contracts that we worked on with with some large businesses that subsequently declared bankruptcy, and we got left holding the bag. 
And to me, I made a conscious decision not to pay myself because, as we say in the military, leaders eat last. And I paid my employees, and I made sure that their health care was covered. And, and you know, I, I, obviously, my personal expense, it took a risk. So and I went for almost two years without a salary. Did, and, uh, so did you go a year without paying your mortgage? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure exact months, but uh, I did struggle on the ability to pay, pay some mortgage with, uh, with, obviously, I went through a divorce and with some other things, uh, including them increasing my escrow, that I was unable to pay my mortgage for a bit. I did offer to do partial payments, but as anyone who's been through this process, and it's a very common process, that they wouldn't accept a, a partial payment. So, yeah, clearly I've not been paying my mortgage until this gets resolved. Mm. But the house is not foreclosed on, to further clarify. Mm. So we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, and uh, I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to leave a message with voters. Uh, do this with all candidates. Uh, try to you know give them a, a minute or so to just leave a message with voters. Uh, those in the 6th District, uh, what would you uh, say to them? Well, as I say to everyone, I think that uh, this is a, is a referendum on on leadership, and I bring proven leadership to to Washington, and uh, and I think that right now, as I said earlier, Congress is is too dysfunctional and too broken right now that it needs to be cleaned up, and it needs to, you know, we need to get away from being uh, career politicians and worrying about the next election. I'm not running to for a career. As I said, I've had two great careers. Uh, I am running against a career politician, um, but I am running as a veteran and as a business owner, and I'm running as a citizen politician. You know, I am running as an American first. You know, and I I don't believe in polarizing politics, as I say, uh, you know, I, I look at, uh, at um, Republicans and Democrats as I look at the uh, Protestants and Catholics. You know, we're, we're Americans first, and that's what we need to get back to. We need to get back to the ability to compromise and to, to get things done, and uh, that's, that leadership is, is sorely lacking today. Democrat. So their vote. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, finish your okay, with, with, with your vote, I hope to be a, you know, a good representative of all of us in the 6th District for all four counties. Democrat Mike Parrish, he's running for Congress in the 6th Congressional District. That includes parts of Lebanon, Berks, Chester, and Montgomery counties. Colonel Parrish, thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. All right, I want to switch gears. After months of not being a major issue, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, has once again become a political issue in the presidential and other political campaigns. One of the reasons is there are insurance companies dropping out of the Federal Health Insurance Exchange, where those shopping for insurance can compare plans, and because rates have gone up significantly. Uh, I promise this is not going to be about politics, but uh, as I said, it has become a major issue. just want to hear from uh, the two uh, presidential candidates on something they said in the second presidential debate about uh, about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton listed some of the benefits of the Affordable Care Act. Insurance companies can't deny you coverage because of a pre-existing condition. Number two, no lifetime limits which is a big deal if you have serious health problems. Number three, women can't be charged more than men for our health insurance, which is the way it used to be before the Affordable Care Act. Donald Trump countered in many ways, but one of the things he talked about was not only are rates going up. And not only are your rates going up by numbers that nobody's ever believed, but your deductibles are going up so that unless you get hit by a truck, you're never going to be able to use it. Here in Pennsylvania, rates will increase an average of 42 percent. 
The Pennsylvania Insurance Commission sets those rates, and we're joined today by Pennsylvania's Insurance Commissioner, Teresa Miller. Commissioner Miller, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And we are taking your phone calls, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. As I said, I'm not bringing politics into this, but I did want to ask about the comments that both uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump made. Um, Hillary Clinton was talking about uh, the deductibles, or excuse me, was talking about uh, some of the benefits of the ACA. Trump was talking about the deductibles. Both those things, contributors to the rate increase here in Pennsylvania? Uh, you know, I, the deductibles certainly aren't a, a, a factor in the increases. I think what we're seeing in terms of the the factors uh, that are behind these these significant increases, and I I'm I'm very concerned. Let me just say that first about these increases, and I'm glad that we have so many people in Pennsylvania who are getting subsidies to help them pay for it. But there's there's actually a, a lot of things going on here. I think um, having a couple of major carriers leave our market had a huge impact, and um, what we learned is after those carriers indicated they were leaving. Um, we had some of our additional remaining carriers reach out to us and indicate that they were um, seriously considering leaving the market as well. So, you know, some of the increases we ultimately approved were actually higher than the increases the companies requested. And it was really because, and I had no idea six months ago or three months ago we were going to face this scenario, but we faced the real possibility of potentially having consumers in Pennsylvania with no access to coverage on the exchange and therefore no way to get access to subsidies to help them pay for that coverage. So one of the things going on is just uh, carriers are leery of this market because it has yet to stabilize. And frankly, I mean, I think Congress has a lot to, to do with the fact that this market still hasn't stabilized. They've really prevented the, the ACA from working as it was intended. So on the one hand, they undermine it by not allowing risk corridor payments to be paid and um, suing over cost-sharing reductions, which help people pay for their cost-sharing. Um, on the other hand, when, when that leads to increases in rates, then they say the law is not working. You just. I know. A, I have a lot. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not complaining. You. I just had about five questions from sure. what you said. But uh, first of all, let's start with why the carriers. You're talking about Aetna and United Health. Uh, why did they decide to pull out? I think this is probably an obvious question. But why did they decide to pull out? You know, I think. And I don't want to speak for them, but I think what we heard from them is concerns about the ongoing losses that they were continuing to face. And and more than just the losses that they were facing, just generally concern about the stability of this market going forward and, and what it might mean for their their bottom line going forward. Even if they weren't losing money on this line of business now, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of reasons why, for insurance companies, this is just a really... Um, uncertain market to be in uh, because of some of the there's the three R programs that were part of the Affordable Care Act, the risk adjustment, risk corridor, and reinsurance programs were all designed to stabilize the market. And I think the goal was in three years we'd have a stable market. We just haven't gotten to there for a lot of different reasons. And so I think for companies, they're just not sure. We've seen huge enrollment shifts from one company to the other. So a company, because of no actions they've taken, could end up with 50, 60, 
60, 70,000 enrollees they didn't anticipate. And those types of things make this uh, a less attractive market to be in. Now, when you're talking about a market, are you talking about a geographic area like Pennsylvania, or are you just talking about the marketplace overall, the status of where we are? I'm talking about the individual market. And it's important, I think the last last time I was on uh, last year when we were talking about this, you made a point that was a good one, which is... I always try. <laughs> and, <laughs> Every once in a while, I get lucky. <laughs> you no, know, you, you made the, the point that you know the individual market really only covers a very a relatively small number of people. In Pennsylvania, it's really 5% of Pennsylvanians who are covered through the individual market. But that's really the market, that's the market where we're seeing the big increases, and that's the market where we're seeing companies leave, and that's the market that's just, in terms of the stability, is really up in the air. Mm -hmm. What is, how would a, a stable market be defined? Uh, to me, a stable market would be defined as a market where companies want to be in the market, and you have a number of companies offering coverage, so you have a competitive market, and um, therefore you have choices for, for consumers. And I think, you know, a year ago, frankly, a lot changed in our market in a year. A year ago, I was here talking about how we're lucky in Pennsylvania that we have a competitive market, and I, I would have said last year, well, maybe it wasn't hundred percent stable it was it was a good market companies were in it consumers had a lot of choices um, and and we did have competition that's changed and now we've got a situation a year later where um, companies are are really looking hard at this market and saying you know I've taken a lot of losses I'm really concerned about what the future might look like Congress hasn't you know allowed the law to work as it was intended so I'm not sure if this is a market I want to be in going forward. When you say that Congress has not allowed it to work, what do you mean? So, you know, and it's 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 Congress and it's also the federal government, but um, a lot of federal actions have taken place. And when I sat down with our carriers who indicated that they were they were seriously considering leaving the market, when I sat down to understand what their concerns were, they started with the concerns at the federal level. And those included, you know, number one, the fact that Congress intervened and didn't allow payment of the risk corridor payments. And these were payments that were to be made to insurers if they had had more losses than they anticipated. So it was it was part of the deal with insurers. Hey, if you participate in this market, then if you have higher losses than you anticipate, risk corridor payments will be made to help make this an attractive place to be. Um, and then Congress intervened and didn't allow those payments to be made. So they were ultimately made for a year at 12.6%, so 12.6 cents on the dollar. Um, so that was a huge concern for, for companies. There was also a concern over litigation that some members of Congress have um, have instituted, which is related to cost-sharing reduction. So again, these are payments that help low, our lowest-income consumers pay for deductibles and, and their cost-sharing, their out-of-pocket cost-sharing. And members of Congress are suing to take those away. So once again, that makes this an, a less attractive market for companies to be in. And one of the last issues I heard about um, was concern that the federal government is not uh, enforcing what are called special enrollment periods. So again, part of the grand deal that was part of the Affordable Care Act is you have open enrollment periods, which we're coming up on now, where you have, this time you have a three-month period where people are supposed to buy coverage, and they're not supposed to be able to buy 
buy coverage outside of that open enrollment period because what you don't want is a situation where people can buy coverage when they're sick, get that coverage, get the care, stop paying premiums, and then leave the market when they're healthy again. That's that's not going to lead to a stable market. And so there there are reasons that people can get coverage outside of open enrollment, but it's because of a change in life circumstance. Well, unfortunately, I think what we've heard from all of our carriers is that the federal government is not enforcing those special enrollment periods, so anybody can really get coverage anytime throughout the year. And what our carriers are telling us is that's leading to huge problems from their perspective because they are seeing people come on mid-year because they're sick, they stay on just long enough to get care, often expensive care, and then they go back off. They don't pay premiums going forward. And the carrier's then stuck with you know, quite a bit of claims for that individual, but really no premiums to pay for it. So another concern. Wow. You know, and I say wow because there are so many things that have not turned out as anticipated or at least planned. Um, that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, young people. Uh, you know, one of the things that we were told is that... Uh, for this to work, we needed uninsured young people, especially, to enroll and to get insurance. And what we found is that, and then a lot of this is anecdotal. I don't know if there, you know, there's research out there, but we've heard that many young people have decided to pay the fine for not being insured rather than to uh, to obtain an in- insurance. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. It just sounds like there's a lot going on that was unintended. Is that a factor, too, in why some of these, you know, the insurance companies are not making the kind of money that they need to be competitive, that they, uh, you know, the, that they had to raise rates? I mean, are those things factors, too? I think they absolutely are. I think I've, I'm hearing the same thing you are, that we've got young people who, instead of getting insurance, which was the intent and which keeps premiums lower for everyone because you have everybody in the pool, um, in the risk pool, we're, I'm hearing that people are paying the penalty because, frankly, the penalty is so much cheaper than uh, today, anyway, than a lot of these premiums. And as the premiums continue to go up, of course, it makes it even more um, challenging for, for the young people to afford the coverage. So that's, again, why I think the, the subsidies become so important. And I, I don't know if these young people are checking to see if the subsidies, if they're eligible or if they're just kind of throwing up their hands and saying, you know, I'm just going to pay the penalty. You know, something else I heard just the other day, and uh, maybe I shouldn't even bring it up because I don't know, you know, who can it be attributed to, but you tell me if you've uh, heard this as well, is that, you know, one of the things we were told with more people getting insurance, it would only make sense that fewer people would go to the emergency room, for example, at hospitals uh, if they had a cold or, you know, uh, just a, a small injury, a slight injury, that they would have insurance. They would go to a doctor. They would, you know, have a family doc or, you know, work with their, their, their care plan. Just heard a story the other day that said there actually are more people going to emergency rooms now than before. Reason being is that they have insurance, but they don't have a family doc that they go to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if you talk to our carriers, they may tell you that they've got evidence that that's happening also, because I do think that's one of the issues I've heard from some of our carriers is that people are still continuing to use the emergency room for care that really isn't emergency care. And, of course, that's going to be the most expensive place to receive that care. This is this is a difficult issue. It's one I actually I talk about a lot um, with our team and with carriers is 
And I'm not sure, as somebody who is in the middle of a lot of these issues, I'm not sure I would always know where to go get care in terms of the best place, depending on what my ailment is. So, you know, one of the things that we've been working on um, with other agencies under Governor Wolf's direction is some health innovation work. And one of the things we've been trying to do for the last year and are continuing to try to do is to figure out health insurance and health care, it's not intuitive. And um, people need good information about how they how they shop for insurance, but then once they have insurance, how they use their insurance. And so, um, which makes, uh, allows me to make a point, which is, you know, one of the things on our website we've tried to do is put better information out there. We actually have a short video for people on how to shop for insurance. What should you be thinking about as you're buying insurance? But we know there's a lot of people now that have insurance that didn't before. So we also have, uh, I think it's another five minute video that's really about how to use your insurance. Where do you go for care? Um, but that's one of the things we're going to be working on going forward is some health literacy work and some, you know, maybe putting in place some health literacy campaigns to help people with that question of, if this is the issue I'm facing, where do I go for the best care for the dollar? Mm-hmm. When we talk about uh, some of the other factors and actually the numbers and the way they have uh, increased over uh, for uh, this year, coming up in just a moment, you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Pennsylvania Insurance Commissioner Teresa Miller. We are taking phone calls, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Before we take phone calls and emails, I did want to follow up. Uh, you talked about some of the factors that have led to these increases. What kind of increases are we talking about? Well, so we have uh, ranges of increases. I think the the average increase is 32%, 32.5% in the individual market. We have some companies with increases of 23%, some of increases of 55%, 28%. So they really, they really vary um, in terms of the increases. The one thing, you know, there's a couple points, if, if you don't mind, that I... No, go right ahead. I, I was actually looking um, over the last couple of days at, at your listening area to try to see if there are things I could say that, that might be helpful for people. And a couple of points I would make, because if I were out there hearing that, you know, these increases are going up so significantly, I'd be really concerned. One thing to remember is today in 2016, 78% of the people who purchase coverage through the exchange, and we've got 412,000 people in Pennsylvania who have coverage through the exchange, 78% of them get subsidies today. So for them, as the premiums go up, so do the subsidies. So for 78% of the people who have coverage through the exchange that are getting those subsidies, they're not going to see the impacts of these increases. So I think that's important to note. Um, the other thing I would say for, um, for this area in particular is if you're not eligible for subsidies, and we know, I think my data shows there's 91,000 people on the exchange today that are not getting subsidies because they're not eligible. For those people, they actually may want to look at options off the exchange because they might be able to save significant money by going off the exchange. They're going to be similar plans in terms of the benefits and, and all of that, but they're just not offered on the exchange for whatever reason. So um, I would encourage people who aren't eligible for subsidies to, to potentially look off exchange. Um, and finally, we there was a report put out by um, 
the Department of Health and Human Services, where they estimate that we have about 111,000 Pennsylvanians today who purchase off the exchange, but because of their income are actually eligible for subsidies. So that's a lot of people that could be helped by subsidies. So if folks are, are getting their, their coverage off exchange, but are in income limits that would make them eligible for subsidies, I would really encourage them to look at purchasing on the exchange so they can get access to those subsidies. You know, this probably confuses a lot of people, even though we're a few years into this, because, uh, again, right up front when it first started, uh, we were told, okay, if you're uninsured, go to the exchange. Mm -hmm. uh, then, and at that time, Medicaid was not expanded here in Pennsylvania. Right. Medicaid was, a lot of people weren't eligible for Medicaid. Now they are. Uh, by the way, what what are the numbers, the number of people in Medicaid uh, since the Affordable Care Act or since Governor Wolf You uh, know, I just that? saw a press release, and I want to say the numbers... Uh, let's see. If uh, it doesn't. I mean, if you find it, fine. But uh, just we we do know that there are many more people who are on Medicaid. A lot more. But when you're also advising people to check off the exchange, I mean, when we were told originally go to the exchange, now we're t you're, you're saying you don't necessarily need to go to the exchange. Confusion, chaos reigns. I know. We were just talking about this on the way here because, you know, again, last year, because our market was so different, I, I think my message was go to the exchange and go to the because all the carriers were on the exchange. Now we have some carriers who are only participating in our market off the exchange. And in some cases, their their prices of their plans are significantly lower. And again, it's it's the same products. And so um, I. I realize that message is confusing. And really, I mean, for subsidies, individuals that have incomes up to $47,480 are eligible for a subsidy. And if you've got a family of four, uh, and this is all for 2017, if, you, if your income is $97,200 or less, you're going to be eligible for a subsidy. So the only people that I would suggest go and look for options off the exchange would be people with incomes higher than that who are not going to be eligible for subsidies. All right, let's go to a few of the emails and the phone calls that we get. We get, uh, you know, and I think this is generally uh, a comment, but it is one that you hear often. And I don't know, and I'll ask you the question you said earlier when we hear, heard the, uh, the Donald Trump uh, soundbite there about deductibles. We know that one of the one of the things insurance companies have done to try to offset those increased rates are to increase uh, deductibles. Mm -hmm. And had a gentleman here said, you're making $9 an hour, but you have deductibles ranging from 1000 to $5,000. I think he had figures higher than that. But we do know that that is happening. Mm -hmm. First of all, why isn't that taken into consideration? And the point he makes is a very good one. If you have a $5,000 deductible and you go, you don't have a lot of health problems, but just going to the doctors, you're mm -hmm. thinking, well, what good is the insurance doing me? Well, so a couple of points on that. First of all, I think, um, and I, I believe Hillary Clinton may have made this point in, in the clip that you made, um, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, really prioritized preventive care. So a, a lot of preventive care is actually free or no cost to the consumer. So if you've got insurance and you go get your, your annual visit, those are often preventive services. And so you're not going to have to pay out of pocket and your deductible doesn't apply. So I think in terms of, of staying healthy, the, the ACA really did um, try to promote preventive care by, by taking away the cost from consumers. The other thing I would 
would say, and I know this isn't going to make this gentleman feel any better, and I, I very much appreciate his, his concern. He's right. These deductibles are high, and it does, if you have significant health care, it, it makes it very difficult. Um, one of the, th- one of the things, um, one of the factors really behind the significant increases this year is also that Pennsylvania's plans have been underpriced. They, they just have been. And I think there was a, a bankrate.com study done last year that showed that in terms of out-of-pocket costs, all the costs associated with health insurance, so this would be include deductibles as well as premiums, that Pennsylvania actually had the fifth lowest out-of-pocket costs for consumers. Again, I know that doesn't make anyone feel any better, but it, it just explains why we're seeing such significant increases here, because our, our plans have been underpriced. Our carriers, most of them, have been losing a lot of money on these products. So we part of what we were doing this year is trying to get the products to a place where um, they were more appropriately priced. Let's take some phone calls. David is in Tower City. David, you're on the air. Yes. Before you guys had mentioned about the young people deciding to pay the penalty um, for not taking the insurance, where does that money go when they do pay the penalty? Does it go back to the insurance companies? to pay things, or does it go to the federal government? I'll take my answer off the air. Thank thank you. you for your call. Thanks for the question. Yeah, the penalty is paid through your taxes, so that money goes to the federal government. Yeah, when you think about it, uh, I don't know whether you've ever experienced this, uh, David, or know people who have, but how you find out whether you were uh, enrolled was on your tax returns. That's where it it, it comes down to that. Let me go to an email here. We had uh, an email from Jim who's talking about, uh, you know, and and Donald Trump has brought this up, and others have too. It's nothing new. But he's talked about opening up state lines for insurance coverage, that insurers would not just be here in Pennsylvania, but uh, if someone here in Pennsylvania wanted to enroll with an insurance company based in Chicago, for example, that they Mm -hmm. could do that, would that make it any better? You know, I think that's one of the great myths out there, and and I hear this a lot, and I've heard Donald Trump talk about this. And, you know, at the end of the day, health care and health insurance is very local. The reason you don't have companies in California trying to offer coverage in Pennsylvania is not because we have, uh, you know, borders around Pennsylvania. It's really because you have to have networks that are local so people can get care locally. I don't think people in Pennsylvania want to go to California to get their care. So developing those networks is actually a very, very challenging thing to do. And it's not something that carriers um, it takes a lot of time and energy. So we've actually seen, there was a study that came out a couple years ago where they looked at a couple of states that passed laws saying, you know, we're going to allow carriers to sell across state lines. And what they found is there was really no interest on the part of carriers in, in doing that because at the end of the day, you still have to develop those networks locally, and then you're competing with carriers who have longstanding relationships with those same providers. So unless you're really committed to that market and you've been there and you've developed those relationships, you've gotten those provider rates that you want, um, a carrier coming in trying to develop those same relationships, you've got a lot of providers you have to work with, they're going to have a hard time competing. So it's it's really not something that, at the end of the day, carriers are interested in doing. So it, it really, you can say we're going to open up and get rid of the state lines. It really doesn't matter. It, it actually sounds good, though, because it sounds sure. like it opens up competition. But uh, you've you got to have it, health insurers that... <laughs> yeah, who will participate. But yeah. that goes back to what you originally said when... 
You have uh, two major health carriers who drop out of the market. And before we take another phone call, because I want to make sure in the last few minutes that I, you clarify this, you said that uh, there is a great possibility. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Did you say great possibility or did you say there is potential for Pennsylvania to have no carriers? So there was. Um, there Now we've, we've solved that. So after actually after we had made decisions on rates this year, which happened at the end of August, um, so that we could get them to the federal government and they could start loading them into the system. After that happened, we had carriers approach us and say, we're seriously considering leaving the exchange, which they can do after rates have been approved. I mean, they can decide that they want to no longer participate. So given what we were hearing from carriers at that point in time, there was a possibility, particularly because what we learned is no carrier wants to be the last one in the market. So they were very on edge that other carriers were going to drop out. And if they dropped out, they didn't want to be the last one. So we were really looking at a situation where we could have ended up having Pennsylvanians around the state not have access to any coverage through the exchange. We then worked with our carriers to figure out what we needed to do to keep them in the market. So we've avoided that situation. And I think that's the good news about the announcement is every Pennsylvanian has an option on the exchange and therefore has access to subsidies. Let's go to Maria in Lancaster. Maria, you're on the air. Hello. Um, I wanted to uh, state that my daughter, uh, when she was shopping for her insurance, she could have had a subsidy, but after she has seen what I've gone through with the Department of Human Services, she decided she wasn't going to even try. She had it. She called. She was trying to go through them. There was some sort of roadblock. She just said, forget it. I'm just going to pay for it myself. So what kind of problems did you have? I, ha I get Medicaid, and, and I've been doing this for years. There's just... It, they don't have enough people, I'm sure, to handle every all the work that they have to do, and uh, I can't even go into all the details. It's it's a nightmare dealing with that agency. It's all I can tell you. I've done it for years, and she just decided she wasn't going to go through that. Mm. Thank you very much for your call. I, I know you hate to hear calls like that because uh, f there are people that have run into situations where they've said, you know what, I'm not going to deal with it. It's very sad to me to hear that. And, and you know, I, I worked for the federal government and I've worked for state governments and I'm so pleased to be here in Pennsylvania working for the state government. And I will tell you, having been on the state side and the federal side, um, the worst thing from my perspective that we can ever tell someone is, let me give you the number to a federal agency to help with your problems. I mean, I, I want to help people um, at the state level. Frankly, I, I wish Pennsylvania had a state-based exchange because then we at the state level would be able to help consumers. The one thing I would say is, let me give you our 1-800 number because we do try to help consumers even though it's a federal agency. Our 1-800 number is one 881 6388. And we certainly will do whatever we can to advocate on people's behalf and, and try to help them navigate the, the bureaucracy of the federal government. Um, Commissioner uh, Teresa Miller, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, what about next year? I mean, if you can give me an answer in like 10, 10 seconds. I sincerely hope next year is better. I, I really hope we have these products now priced at a, a level where all we see going forward is, you know, increases in health cost. But 
we'll, we'll see how things go. Commissioner, thank you very much for being with us today. Coming up on the Monday, when I'm 65, retirement and removing a public official from office in Pennsylvania isn't easy. 